On this episode of Blue 58, let's have a little off-season speculation, shall we? What if the Packers made a big splash at wide receiver? Well, it could cut down on Aaron Rodgers' throwaways, which were a big problem in 2018. We'll take a look back at what happened there before diving into our 2018 recap, then we'll finish it all off with a little Valentine's Day fun. Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast to thepowersweep.com. I am your host, John Meerdink, very happy to be with you here recording on Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day. Hope you're enjoying it or just eating a lot of chocolate and or other fun foods. Had a lot of fun foods today. Circling back to the pie versus cake thing. This is, I guess, apropos. Uh, we've talked a lot for some reason on the past few episodes about pie versus cake. Today I had something that's been relatively new to me, a donut cake. Still not as good as pie. Much better than regular cake. Basically just a normal-sized cake made out of donut dough instead of cake dough. Very good. Try it if you get a chance. Anyway, that's neither here nor there, though I guess talking about sweets is appropriate for Valentine's Day. Wouldn't it be sweet, though, aha, segue, if the Packers could land one of the biggest names at wide receiver out there? I'm speaking, of course, about Antonio Brown, who is reportedly on the trading block in Pittsburgh. And since it's the offseason and these questions will come up as they do, let's talk about the idea of the Packers trading for him for a little bit. We've got a full piece coming out either today or sometime in the relatively near future on thepowersweep.com about the logistics of trading for a guy like Antonio Brown. And you should read the whole thing, but I'd like to draw your attention to one area in particular. And this is something I brought up in our discussion on the blog about Clay Matthews recently. I think there are two key questions that you need to ask yourself on all potential acquisitions, free agent, trade, whatever. First, what are you getting, i.e. what kind of player is he going to be? And second, what is it going to cost? For Antonio Brown, that's a difficult calculation on both sides. First, what are you going to get? Well, everybody likes to point out how great a player Antonio Brown has been 2013 to present. And it's true. He's been really good. Uh, he's averaging more than 100 catches a year, like 1,500 yards and 12 touchdowns. It's, it's really good. But that's not how you should evaluate a trade or a free agent acquisition because Guys don't play in the past. They play in the future. So what kind of player is Antonio Brown likely to be between now and the end of his contract three years from now? Well, he's going to be 31 in July, so it stands to reason that he's going to decline a little bit. Are you comfortable with that decline? If so, how much of a decline are you comfortable with? That's what you have to weigh. I think paired with another good receiver like Devontae Adams, there's a chance that some of that decline could be offset a little bit. But... That brings us to the second question. What is it going to cost to get a, a guy like Antonio Brown? And trades are especially tricky because you have to pay twice, right? You've got to pay the contract when you eventually get the player, but you also have to get him here somehow. And on Brown, there's a big range of that potential cost. I think it could be anything from like a first rounder to a first rounder and multiple play picks to just a mid-round pick to maybe Pittsburgh saying, hey, you know what? We're good. We're not going to trade him at all. He can either show up and play for us or he cannot play at all. Pittsburgh doesn't have to do anything here. I think they probably will, but they don't have to, and that's not inconsiderable as you evaluate this whole situation. So just weigh those things. Think about that with every other potential acquisition out there. 
I saw Odell Beckham Jr.'s name come up again this week. Thank you, Jay Glazer, for that. And thank you, Jay Glazer, for your subsequent uh, very interesting meltdown uh, when people ask you about that. All entertaining on all fronts. But you've got to weigh what it costs to get a guy and what kind of guy you're actually getting. That's something that's going to come up about Earl Thomas. It's going to come up about Le'Veon Bell. It's going to come up about every single potential free agent. So ask yourself those two questions, and we'll try to keep asking them, as I know we are going to talk about more potential acquisitions for the Packers over the next month to two months or so. Let's talk for a second about Aaron Rodgers throwing the ball away. Set up up top that maybe acquiring another high-end talent at receiver could cut down on Aaron Rodgers' throwaways. I don't know if that's ultimately true or not, but it kind of fits as a little bit of a segue. I've always wondered about this data we saw thrown out by Pro Football Focus this year that Aaron Rodgers was on pace and ended up setting a record for the most throwaways in their era that they've ever seen. 59 throwaways all season. Well, what does that really mean? What happened on every one of those plays? If only someone would break down every single one of those 59 throwaways and let us know what happened. Thank you, Dusty Evely. Writing for CheeseheadTV.com, he has done those exact things, and he's done it very accurately because he got the actual data from Pro Football Focus. They told him the plays that they quantified as throwaways, and he went through everyone and wrote a little bit about what happened. You should read the entire piece because it's a good example, I think, of really useful film study. I think a lot of what Pro Football Focus does is kind of bunk just because it's so subjective and there's so many factors and blah, blah, blah. If you've listened to me long enough, if you've read what we've done on thepowersweep.com, you know my feelings on Pro Football Focus really well. But stuff like this, done either by Pro Football Focus or somebody else, I think is enlightening because it takes a trend. It takes something that's an obvious problem and puts some interesting context on it. And sure, like a lot of the other pro football focus analysis, there's an element of subjectivity here. But when you drill down to one specific thing that you're looking at, that subjectivity matters less because you're just looking at one factor. When you're just looking at plays where Aaron Rodgers threw the ball away and trying to figure out why he threw it away, that is a lot easier to do than looking at an entire play and trying to figure out how all 22 players on both sides of the ball may or may not have affected that play to what extent they did and then grading them for it. That it seems like it's fraught with issues. Again, the whole piece is worth your time. And if you are at all active on Packers Internet, you will probably find it in your feed sooner or later. The too long did not read version of this is this. Dusty quantifies 44 of the 59 throwaways as being due to pressure or because nobody was open. And there's a mix of what the other 15 were, but seven of them were what Dusty calls Rogers' hesitation. And I think you kind of intuitively know what that is. Rogers drops back, gets to the peak of his drop, and just kind of double clutches there for a second. It looks like the ball should be coming out, but it's just not. And for me, at least, 7 out of 59 throwaways being because of Rodgers maybe passing up some of the open or not delivering the ball on time is a lot lower than I would have expected. And I've read Dusty for a long time, and I trust his breakdowns. I think they're high quality and well done, so I'm inclined to take his word for it. And I think that the pressure coming and forcing those throwaways or nobody being open is a huge problem and probably a much bigger problem than Rodgers throwing the ball away 
anyway. Now, if he's throwing it away 30 times over the course of the season, it's just because he didn't want to throw it to a particular person or whatever. That's a different story. But with the numbers that we've got, if they're reliable, and I think they are, this is probably just further evidence that the Packers offense was broken and Rodgers was probably making the best of a bad situation. Vince Lombardi said when you throw the ball, two of the three things that can happen are bad. Pretty obvious if you break it down. You can either have a completion that's good or you can throw an interception or an incompletion. Those are both relatively bad. Rather than trying to force a completion, Rodgers throwing the ball away is taking the less bad of the two bad options there. So I guess in some ways this is Rodgers making a positive or a less negative out of a bad situation. Moreover, this also gives us time to reassess our own conclusions about what we saw. And I'm as guilty of this as anybody. But think about how often we saw Rodgers throw the ball away in 2018. How many times did you really know whether somebody was open or not? Hard to say for sure when you're just watching on TV because you don't have the all-22 angle. You don't see everything that's going on on the field. That's just worth thinking about, I think. Anyway, read the entire piece. It's worth your time. And uh, I think I need to do a better job of calling out pieces elsewhere around the internet that are worth your time because we can all, you know, lift the discourse together. This is about becoming smarter Packers fans, right? Let's return to our breakdown of the Packers 2018 season games. We are headed towards games 11 and 12 today. And I've noticed as we've gone on, and I kind of expected this, but it's really become clear to me that these games are getting harder and harder to break down on an actual gameplay basis. We're past the point where the games really matter for the Packers. It's more about the kind of arch narrative at this point. But I think that fits with our overall purpose here because I think we've got three main objectives, as I've said throughout this process. It's worth teasing out the truth of the narrative in 2018, looking back and seeing if we were on at the time or if we were a little bit misguided. There's some early evidence in this episode that we were probably a little bit misguided because I still believed, I think, headed into this Vikings game that there was a chance the Packers could turn this around and at least make it interesting down the stretch. That obviously didn't end up happening. Second, there might be important things that we forgot, people who got injured at particular times. That becomes a factor in a game that we're going to look at today. And just little details that we didn't pick up on or may have forgotten about. Finally, it helps us remember who did what and when. There's, I think, a case to be made that even though the raw numbers skew heavily in favor of one player, one young wide receiver actually had a much better season. I'm talking, of course, about Marquez Valdez-Scantling and Equinemia St. Brown. I think when you look at just the, the box score numbers, it looks like MVS was way ahead of St. Brown. But on a game-by-game basis, and when and where they're getting the catches, I think that St. Brown is right there with them. It's a lot closer than maybe you might think. That's just an example. may not be a perfect one either. So how do we do this? Well, we ask three questions. What led up to a game? What happened in the game? And how should we remember a game? So let's talk about game number 11, in which the Packers traveled to Minnesota to take on the Minnesota Vikings on November 25th, 2018. A primetime game. Sunday night football. And the Packers are going to be a little bit shorthanded. I know you've heard that before. What led up to this game? Well, Mike Daniels' season ends unofficially. He wouldn't be put on injured reserve until a week later. But this was it for him. He was was done at this point. Defensive line started the season as a strength. 
Kenny Clark, Mike Daniels, Muhammad Wilkerson, Dean Lowry, Montrevious Adams. By this point in the season, we're down to Kenny Clark, Dean Lowry, Montrevious Adams, Tyler Lancaster, and James Looney starts kicking around here before too long. Not quite yet. Fidal Brown makes an appearance. It's not a strength of the team anymore. Also this week, word comes out that Jimmy Graham is going to try to play with the broken thumb that he sustained during the Packers-Seahawks game. Points for bravery here for sure, but he only had more than three catches in one game after the thumb injury. Uh, And that would be in the Arizona Cardinals game, game 12, which we're going to talk about here in a second. Graham's effectiveness was greatly reduced after he got the thumb injury. He only had three explosive plays in six games after the thumb injury. He had nine in ten games before that. He was a different player. The Packers knew it. Their opponents knew it. I suspect Jimmy Graham knew it, but I guess points for him for going out and playing with it nonetheless. It would have been easy to just kind of shut it down. Anyway, uh, the Packers also signed T.O. Redding to their practice squad this week. Keon Hatcher returned to the Oakland Raiders. This is exactly as interesting as it sounds, so we'll move on. Personally, we declared this the last stand of Mike McCarthy. We opened our preview of the Vikings game with an extended Lord of the Rings analogy, referring to the two towers scene where Aragorn and Theoden get together and say, we're going to ride out and meet the enemy here. This might be our last stand, but hey, we're going to go down swinging. And I wondered if this was a time when the Packers would just kind of fold up and say, we're done here, or would they ride out and meet their opponents? I predicted a Packers win, and uh, that is not what happened. Because at this point in the season, as we delve into our second question here, what happened in this game, the Packers just seemed tired. And it seemed like a game the Vikings were going to control early on. It's not exactly what happened, because early on this looks fairly competitive. The Packers had a nice opening drive, or a nice drive midway through the first quarter, I should say. They go up 7 to nothing on a nice, nice play by Devontae Adams. Scores a 15-yard touchdown. It's a 7 nothing lead for the Packers. But the Vikings tie it up on their next drive at 7-7. The Packers come right back and score again. It's 14-7. And Equinemius St. Brown has two big catches on the drive. A 15-yarder and a 23-yarder. The Packers score here with just over 14 minutes to go in the second quarter. And it looks like they've set themselves up. For a big offensive day. But those were the last points they would score until there were just over two minutes left in the fourth quarter. The Packers bogged down entirely for almost three entire quarters and Minnesota takes over. These are the games that the Vikings thought they were going to get uh, Kirk Cousins for because he finishes this day 29 of 38 for 342 yards and three touchdowns. If that's what $100 million guaranteed gets me, I'm pretty much fine with that. That wasn't the Kirk Cousins that they got for the whole season, so maybe they're a little less fine with that. Adding a caveat to Cousins' day, though, the Packers were an absolute nightmare on the back half in this one. Kevin King was out. Bashad Breland was out. Raven Green was out. Kentrell Bryce gets hurt during the game. Tremont Williams gets a little bit banged up during the game. If you're playing at home, as the Vikings were, and you have Adam Thielen and Stephon Diggs, Kyle Rudolph and Dalvin Cook. I mean, come on, you probably should put up 29 of 38 for 342 and three touchdowns. That's probably the game you should have. The Packers in this game did have some pretty serious issues. We just talked about the secondary, but Trevor Davis injures his hamstring late in the first half. It has some cascading consequences. And these are the little things that I think you forget about when you get to February and are looking back on the schedule. So Trevor Davis gets out. 
Jamal Williams has to go back and return kicks. Jamon Moore heads out as a punt gunner and ends up getting a penalty for illegal touching. Jamon Williams has to go back onto the field as a punt returner. He made a bad decision on one punt, got absolutely blasted on another one. When you lose guys like Trevor Davis, other people get put into unexpected spots unexpectedly. And it makes problems for you. Also in this game, over the course of the middle two quarters in which the Packers played horrendously, Lane Taylor and David Bakhtiari both got banged up. A month prior, just two episodes ago, as we're doing our recap, the Packers headed into the Rams game with five players who had played every single snap of the season. They would have had a sixth, but Tremont Williams got bumped out for a series or something. So you could even say like five players in a sixth on a technicality. Haha Clinton Dix, Blake Martinez, David Bakhtiari, Lane Taylor, and Corey Lindsley. By this game, just over a month later, that list is down to one person. Clinton Dix is gone. Martinez has been hurt. Bakhtiari gets hurt. Taylor gets hurt. And Corey Lindsley is the only one left. There's the Packers injury situation in a nutshell. Overall, in this game, the Packers are just a disorganized mess. They can't ever get it together until it's too late. And even then, it, there was really never a threat to the Vikings here. They come out on top, 24-17. to 17. So how do we remember this game? It really den- it did end up being the last stand for Mike McCarthy. This was his last chance to have a meaningful game. This is his second-to-last actual game. And I can't help but wonder how things would have changed over the next few weeks if the Packers win here. I believe that at this point in the season, McCarthy was done. I think there was nothing he could have done short of making a giant rally and making the playoffs. And even then, I'm not sure he keeps his job. But if he wins this game here, I think he probably sticks around till the end of the season. But they don't. And I think McCarthy knows it's over. Remember this quote from after this game, quote, This team, they're a privilege to coach. It starts with me. You feel like you have to give these guys more, end quote. That seems like a guy who knows the shoe's about to drop here, or feels it at least. But even so, I didn't think it was over at the time. I thought a midseason firing was unlikely. I said I would be incredibly surprised if it happened. Spoiler alert, it does. And as we head into our next game here, the 12th game of the season, I don't want to talk about the blow-by-blow what led up to this game. Let's take an extremely broad approach. Because when you have something like a 13-year head coach get fired, the game doesn't matter a whole lot. Let's rewind almost exactly a year to Blue 58 episode number 70 in which I argued that Mike McCarthy would be coaching for his job in 2018. Here's a couple highlights from that episode. First, a quote. This is the second time that McCarthy has done a major staff overhaul. If you remember, he fired a whole bunch of assistant coaches after the 2017 season and brought in some new names, uh, including Mike Pettin. This is the most coaches he's turned over in one offseason since 2009. He's riding in a 2018 with his hand-picked staff. Now, mid-30s MVP caliber quarterback and the first injection of new perspective on defense in nearly a decade. What else is there for Mike McCarthy to fine-tune? He's got what he wants. He's been there for a long time. He's got an all-world quarterback. It's time for some action. Hard to argue with any of that. In retrospect, all of that was true. The Packers had as much talent on the defensive side of the ball as they have had in a long time. 
Aaron Rodgers was back and relatively healthy for most of this season, all things considered. I mean, once you got to the bye week, the the knee brace was pretty much all but eliminated by the Seattle game. He wasn't wearing anything on the knee at all. Even if he was hurt early, they've battled Aaron Rodgers' leg injuries in the past, and he won an MVP in 2014 despite having that calf injury for most of the season. We also laid out some criteria for Mike McCarthy keeping his job. I said it would take a convincing NFC North championship, probably advancing at least to the divisional round and a general sense of improvement around the team. Here's some quotes related to that. First, consider these general questions about the Packers. When have you felt energy around this team? When have we felt a sense of general competence, making sure all the T's were crossed and the I's were dotted? When was there a sense of innovation around the Packers? When was the last time you felt like the Packers were ahead of the curve in any area? There's just no sense of fire or drive or intensity around the top end of the Packers organization, and that includes Mike McCarthy. I don't want to pat myself on the back too hard here, but that seems like it could have come out in November of 2018 rather than February. And it's irritating the extent to which that played out, how nothing changed from February through the offseason program, through training camp, through the bulk of an actual NFL regular season, nothing changed, nothing improved. And I think that's really what did McCarthy in. Then, uh, let's talk about this article by Bill Huber of Packer Report. Uh, He wrote this on October 26th as the Packers are preparing to play the then undefeated St. Louis Rams. He points out in this article that McCarthy has always been able to rally his team. He's always got a line. He's always got, you know, I'm a highly successful NFL coach where nobody's underdog, stuff like that. He can rally his team when he's got to. But Huber points out, and I think accurately, that McCarthy doesn't seem to be that same guy anymore. And I'm going to read you a pretty extended chunk here. Quoting now from the piece. On those occasions where McCarthy decided, talk the talk, his team followed his lead and walked the walk. It didn't take long for McCarthy to turn around the Packers with a trip to the NFC Championship game in his second season. The Packers lost that nobody's underdog game at New England, but won the rest of their games, including the fitted-for-rings Super Bowl forty-five. The 2014 team reached the NFC Championship game. The 2016 team fell to 4-6, and six, but following Rodgers' lead, ran the table to get back to another championship game. The Packers are massive underdogs heading into Sunday's game at the undefeated Los Angeles Rams. This time, there was no bravado from McCarthy. There was no nobody's underdog remixes. Quote, I have not addressed it, McCarthy said. Honestly, when you get into those types of things, I think it's best to avoid it. There's a pretty strict gambling policy still in place in the NFL. What's the line, Bill? McCarthy asked during a press conference. Continuing, Green Bay opened as an eight-and-a-half-point underdog, the largest ever with Rodgers at quarterback. By Wednesday morning, the line had settled in at 10 points. 10? Wow. Who are you taking? Was McCarthy's response. It was a humorous moment of banter. It was also unexpected. As I've, Bill, frequently reminded readers over the years what's said at the podium by McCarthy or any coach might not resemble in any way what McCarthy or his coaches are saying behind closed doors. With that said, it was interesting, perhaps only to me, that the door was open for McCarthy to make a bold statement about the state of his team and his program. Not only did he refuse to go through it, but he refused to even approach the threshold. This seems to be a different McCarthy, again with the acknowledgement that his daily press conferences might have nothing to do with reality. He doesn't seem like a guy who stood before reporters and stated accurately that he was a, quote, highly successful NFL coach. 
Rather, he seems tired. After all, this seemed like a perfect time for a new McCarthy catchphrase, the kind of catchphrase that made the football world take notice and remind everyone that these are the Packers. Instead, McCarthy passed, and it made me wonder why. End quote. Great stuff from Mr. Huber, and it sets up what turned out to be Mike McCarthy's last game perfectly. Because what actually happened in this game really doesn't matter. This is a narrative game through and through. The Cardinals are bad. Everyone knows the Cardinals are bad. They're an underachieving team, even with a rookie quarterback. They've got a rookie head coach who has not delivered. The Cardinals are bad, and you should beat the Cardinals, especially when you are the Green Bay Packers and you are playing at home and you've got Aaron Rodgers and all the things. Instead, here's what happened. The Packers threw 50 passes and only gained 227 yards through the air. The Packers allowed 182 yards on the ground, even though no one Cardinals player had more than 69 yards. The Packers converted just three of 14 third downs. The Packers possessed the ball longer and gained more first downs than the Cardinals and still somehow lost. The Packers had six drives of five plays or less and it produced a season-low three explosive plays. And to top it all off, they missed a field goal late that would have tied the game, although it felt a little bit at the time like a preseason game that was about to go into overtime. The Packers could not beat the Cardinals. So how should we remember this game? Even at the time, McCarthy getting fired was a surprise. It was enough of a surprise that I, that night, had to record two episodes of the podcast. Because we did the recap, went out and saw a movie. I believe it was the second Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find the Movie. It was a waste of 20 bucks. Um, But then stepped out of the movie and found that Mike McCarthy had been fired. In the still yet unreleased version of that podcast that um, we recorded and before McCarthy got fired, I wrote in my notes that I was tired of defending him. I don't know if you fire him now or wait till the end of the season. I thought he was going to get fired at this point, but it just, everybody seemed tired. And for me, the enduring image of this game and kind of the enduring image of the end of the Mike McCarthy era is him walking off Lambeau Field with his play sheet under his arm, hood up, just looking down at the ground. And Mike McCarthy has never been a wildly emotive guy, but he just looked beat, and he looked tired, and I think this is a living example of the old cliche that everything ends badly, otherwise it would never end. Because this is pretty bad. This is the game that ended it for McCarthy, and it's easy to see why. Not so much that they lost, but how. If the thesis of the 2018 season was that McCarthy was fired because there was a disconnect between himself and Aaron Rodgers and therefore the rest of the team, this is pretty good evidence. Criticizing the game plan is one thing when you still end up beating a team 22 to nothing. But when you end up throwing for just 233 yards, 227, when you count the yardage they lost on sacks... On 50 passes, that's something else entirely. And not being able to figure out something 
anything to get something going. I mean, you might as well just quit. If they don't fire you, you might as well just pack it up and head home on your own. McCarthy didn't give really any evidence that things should be different than that. And thus he got fired. So that's it. Through 12 games, the Packers are in a firm downward spiral. And we'll try to figure out how to recap these final four games of the season starting next episode. Four games that mean essentially nothing, but four games that start a new era in Green Bay. While I've got you here, I want to talk for a second about love. It is Valentine's Day after all. I hope you are celebrating with somebody. If you're not, there is still hope. There's always next year, right? Right? There's always next year. I asked our readers and listeners earlier today what they love about the Packers because we all love the Packers here, right? Win, lose, or draw, we love the team. It's fun to enjoy the team. It's fun to talk about the team, blah, blah, blah. You know that, right? Right. Uh, So let's talk about what we love about the Packers. Threw this out on Twitter, got a couple response. Response is, uh, first from Rudy. He says, I love the Packers because for some reason rooted deep in my upbringing, I refer to them as we. And I don't know specifically what Rudy means there, but I also know exactly what he means there. It just feels like a compulsion to say we when you talk about the Packers as opposed to them or the Packers or whatever. And spare me the argument of you're not on the team, blah, blah, blah. That is one of my least favorite things in sports. None of this matters. Who cares how other people consume sports? Just don't. Don't worry about it. If somebody wants to say we about their team, let it happen. It's fine. It's okay. This is all made up anyway. Doesn't matter. Um, The second response, and this is a, a truly great one, I think. Richard writes, I love the fact that because of the Packers, I have made lifelong friends all over the world. I used to travel to Green Bay on my own and was always welcomed by the locals as family. Now I travel alone and meet up with friends. Packers family is the best family. And that is that is true in so many ways. Even for me, I am a bit of a loner by nature. It's the reason that I am a podcaster and not like a YouTube host or something like that. Because I am very comfortable with people not seeing me. Um, which is a little bit hard when you're 6'5". Uh, people are going to see you sooner or later. But I much rather would sit behind a microphone or a keyboard or whatever and interact with people that way. And doing this stuff about the Packers has given me an opportunity to interact with people that way. And I think that is, that's pretty cool. I have friends now all over the world like Richard does um, that I wouldn't have had had I not done stuff like this. I mean, some of the connections I've made with the UK, UK Packers guys and the great stuff that they do never would have happened if not for this. Uh, So that's a lot of fun, and I've really enjoyed that aspect of it. When I was thinking about answering this question, I was trying to figure out the first thing that I loved about the Packers. And I think it came down to one of two things for me. The first one is Reggie White, and I think it's because the first thing I learned about him was that he was a, a, a minister, the minister of defense, but he's a pastor. And knowing that there is a guy like Reggie White 
the big, strong, famous professional football player played for the Green Bay Packers, who I could potentially see in church someday, I thought that was pretty cool as a six, seven-year-old fan. The other thing was the uniforms. I have thought about this question many, many times, why I love uniforms, and I've never been able to come up with an answer, but I, I love the Packers uniforms, really all uniforms, but the Packers in particular, and one of the things that I really wanted was to have a uniform of my own. So when I finally got to play organized sports for the first time, the highlight of the entire season was getting our jerseys before the season. And I will never forget forget getting that Sheboygan Area Youth Soccer Organization, say so, teal green number four jersey for the first time. And it just worked out so well that number four was also Brett Favre's number. So perfect. The first jersey I ever had in sports was Brett Favre's number. What do you love about the Packers? Would love to hear about it. We've got some more. If we get some more, um, shoot them to us on Facebook or on Twitter or email, wherever. Let me know. I would love to share some more of them in our next episode because at this point in the season when we're doing these recaps, it's getting a little bit dark. This is the nadir for sure. Mike McCarthy getting fired midseason, but it doesn't get a whole lot better from here. So shout them out. Let me know them. Love to hear from you. That's all I've got for you on this episode. You can find us as you always do at thepowersweep.com and on Facebook and on Twitter and by reaching out via email. Type thepowersweep1959 at gmail.com into the email provider of your choice. Support us if you'd be so kind via patreon.com slash thepowersweep. That is uh, where you can donate a dollar a month to help us offset some of our costs. Uh, Buy one of our fine t-shirts or sweatshirts at Teespring. Click the shop link at thepowersweep.com to find your way there. And if you would be so kind, leave this review on iTunes or the podcast listening platform of your choice. That does help more people find the show. We do love to hear from you. Any feedback helps us all become smarter Packers fans. And I think that smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I've been your host, John Meerdink. We will see you next time on Blue 58.